Ten Commandments in ten days, or ten weeks, rather. Over the past ten weeks, I hope that you have grown in your understanding of God's Word, of the book of Exodus, and particularly the Ten Commandments, and how the next few chapters kind of fit within that. I hope that you have grown in your understanding of God Himself, as He has clearly revealed Himself in and through His commandments. I hope that you have been stirred up and motivated to, to obey God with a heart of love and worship. I hope that you've had your sin exposed, that you've been convicted, and that you've been walking in repentance. But I also hope, I eagerly desire for you today, especially through this 10th commandment, that your faith would be strengthened, that you would trust God more, that you would live by faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hear this. If you are not trusting God, you are not worshiping God. And if you're not worshiping Him, then you are worshiping someone or something else. I want you to trust Him and to live that life of faith. But it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to live by faith when so much of this world, so much of life seems to be by sight. And what do we see? We look over the fence in our, our neighbor's yard and their grass always seems greener, as the saying goes. But the, the saying is really meant to point out the nonsense of it. If you sell your house to buy your neighbor's house next door because you think that that grass is greener, the very next day you're going to look over and you go, what? Ha, that was my grass, now it's greener. It's not mine anymore. It, it's, it's, a, it's a saying to point out the lunacy of envy. But there are some voices who tell us with a straight face that this is indeed the facts. It is always greener on the other side, so pursue it. Go after it. You'll never be happy unless you get it. Voices like our American culture, and the prosperity prophets, and the puppet master Satan himself. When our culture says to us that newer and more and bigger is always better. And if they have it, well then, you don't need to just fear missing out. You are missing out. Go after it. Get it. And if you can't, woe is you. Or these preachers of the so-called prosperity gospel tell us that this is what God wants for you, that Jesus came and he died so that you could be healthy and wealthy here and now. And that if surely, if, if you see something that your neighbor has and you long for it, you want it, it must be that God wants you to have it. So just pray for it and have enough faith and speak positively and you'll get it. And Satan whispers to us like he did to Eve. I know all the trees of the garden, they're great, aren't they? But, but that tree, the one that you can't have, that must be the best tree of all. That grass is greener. God doesn't want you to have it, but you should. You need it. You deserve it. You'll never be happy without it. Oh, but we mustn't blame these voices. Because you see, they're just singing the song that our hearts are already tuned to. These are external temptations, but James tells us that we are tempted from within. This is what we want. 
And so we read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the commandment is given straight to the people of God. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You see, covetousness is our problem. But what is it? What is covetousness? What does it mean to covet? Defining the word coven isn't quite as easy as you might think. A lot of linguistic and technical challenges with it. Partly because the, the Hebrew and Greek words just simply mean behind it, it to desire. But the English translators, specifically of the ESV, always use the word covet to refer to a negative sense. Not all desiring is bad, but all coveting is sinful desiring. Do you see? So coveting is a sinful and selfish desire. But it's more than that because in the context here, Exodus 20 verse 17, it doesn't just say you shall not covet, does it? It says you shall not covet your neighbor's stuff, that which they have. And so this isn't simply a command about you and God. Well, it's your heart, your desires, and then there's God who sees them, and it's just between you and God. That's not it. It's between you and God and everyone else, your neighbors. And so the Tenth Commandment of you shall not covet what belongs to your neighbor is, is not just you shall not desire or that you shall not have a sinful, selfish desire of what God has not given you, but also that you shall not sinfully and selfishly desire what God has given to them. Another challenge in defining this word is our wiry hearts. That is, that we want to worm worm our way out of getting hit by this commandment. We have a readiness to covet. I struggled this whole week with this message in part because in the beginning I was trying to figure out, like, what is coveting and where does does it... Does it really hit anybody where they live? And the more I saw, the more I realized that the reason why it was so hard to see coveting is because it's nearly everywhere. And we don't realize how constant of an issue this is for us. It's unnerving. It's really bothersome. We are ready to covet at a moment's notice. That line is so fine between a healthy desire and the sinful, wicked coveting. And the ground is so slippery beneath our feet and our hearts are bent. Too often we're ready to covet what belongs to someone else. And so we have a resistance in our hearts to any kind of rebuke or command or warning against coveting. We say things like, yeah, 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 but but not all desiring is bad. So you just, hey, hey, be careful. Let Let me through here. Let me pass. We need a definition then that is Big enough and full enough and clear enough that it hits us squarely on our heart. Because that's what the command does. It's a command about what's going on deep inside you. Every other command is about what you do and your hearts. This one is about your heart itself. And so it plays into all the commandments. How deep this commandment goes just highlights how far God's authoritative rule stretches. It covers every area of life and every relationship it encompasses and it reaches down into the recesses of our souls. When it says you shall not covet, it's saying you shall not value, you shall not be motivated, you shall not think, you shall not want 
what you shouldn't want. We're not always even aware that it's happening. And so we want to have this way of getting out of it. We might have this conversation with ourselves. I mean, it's not, not every desire is wrong, right? Well, yeah. And so, I mean, I can want my neighbor's stuff as long as they're willing to part with it. Like if, if they put a for sale sign in the front yard, I can desire their house, right? Maybe I'm in the market for a house. Well, I guess, yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, I mean, I guess then you could carry it further and say that, well, as long as someone's willing to, to part with what they have, it's okay for me to desire it, right? Well, uh, I mean, that, wait a minute. Wait, wait a second. You see, there is a real overlapping and necessary connection between coveting and discontentment. Between distrusting God who has given us what He's given us. And so we, we can't just make a, a blanket statement and give ourselves a pass on just de- desiring whatever somebody's willing to give up. Because there can be twisted motives in here. It's not just about the thing that is desired, but maybe the kind of desiring or that you should be desiring it at all. There's more to it than that. We want to make it superficial, but it goes down into the hearts. And I said at the beginning of this whole series on the Ten Commandments, That if you are looking for loopholes, if you're looking for technicalities and excuses and ways out, then you have a legalistic heart. It's because you are viewing God's law and God himself merely through a legal lens and trying to find the letter of the law that you can keep like a Pharisee. But God says, this is personal to me. It's relational. He says in chapter 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God. This is why you ought to not covet because of who I am, because of who I am to you and who you are to me and because of who I am for you. We should be eagerly desiring to worship the Lord, eagerly desiring to worship Him by earnestly seeking to see, to peel back the layers of the precept, to see the principle behind it, that we may obey God with a heart of love to the fullest. So allow me to give you a full or full-ish definition of what it means to covet. Coveting, being produced by discontentment with and distrust of God, is the self-focused, unloving, and idolatrous desiring of what God has given to others instead of us. Coveting comes from, it's produced by this discontentment with God, this distrust of God, And it produces a a self-focus, an unloving and idolatrous desire. Desire for something that is not ours, that God has given to someone else and not to us. I want to unpack this a a bit by adding to this what coveting leads to. What it results in. What is it? It's a self-focused, unloving and idolatrous desiring of what God has given to others and not to us. Where does it come from? Discontentment with God and distrust of God. And what does it lead to? What does it result in? How does it affect my relationships with other people? How does it affect my heart? How does it affect my relationship with God? Let me give you three statements. Number one, coveting is idolatrous, and therefore it dishonors God. Coveting is idolatrous, and therefore dishonors God. You might ask, how is coveting idolatry? How is it idolatrous? I mean, it's just wanting something. It's not saying anything about God. it's, It's not 
Just because I want something doesn't mean I'm worshiping it, right? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5.5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Or in Colossians 3.5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Selfishly wanting something that God has given to someone else, he says, is idolatry. Well, that makes it clear that that's what it is, but it doesn't make it clear how that is so. The question remains, what is the connection between coveting and idolatry? We give you two parts to idolatry. Dethroning and deifying. You must first dethrone God and then deify, make into a God that which is not God. First, you must dethrone God. And when I say that, I don't mean you're actually taking him off of his supreme and sovereign place over the universe, but that in your hearts, you're dethroning him. You see, you cannot be discontent with God while at the same time worshiping him. You cannot be discontent with God and worship him at the same time. You're dethroning him when you are discontent with him. You say, yeah, but I'm not discontent with God. Just because I want something else doesn't mean I'm unhappy with God himself. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.5. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Don't covet other people's money. And be content with what you have. How can you be content with what you have? He says, for because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you see the connection here? He says, you, you, don't, you don't covet you're, you, when you're content. And you're content when you say that I'm with you and that's enough. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you can be content. Not that you have what your neighbor has. You have their kind of marriage. You have their health. That you have their body shape or size. That you have their job or their income or their fame or notoriety. That you have their skills. None of that, he says, because you have me. You can be content. And so if you are discontent, you're saying, God, I know I have you, but you're not enough. You are discontent with God himself. At best, coveting divides your heart. You might be saying, yeah, I, I, I like God, but I also really like this. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that you can't do that. You maybe think that you're, that you're wanting both or even loving both, or maybe if you're honest, worshiping both, but God says, no, it's not, that's not happening. You cannot worship me with a divided heart. You may think you're worshiping us both, but you're really only worshiping that. You're dethroning me and putting that in its place. Covetousness and contentment cannot coexist. You cannot be coveting, desiring what God has given to someone else, and at the same time having a God-honoring, God-glorifying contentment. You cannot be sinfully desiring what, someone, what God has given to someone else, and at the same time thanking Him for His generosity and His gracious gifts to you. Murmuring, whining, complaining, thinking that God has somehow been unfair to you is the opposite of being grateful to Him and being content with Him. If you are discontent with what you have, then you're discontent with what God has given you because what you have has come from Him. 
And if you're discontent with what God has given you, you're discontent with how God loves you. And if you're discontent with how God loves you, you are discontent with God himself. And you're dethroning him, telling him that he's not enough. C.S. Lewis once said that he who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God alone. He's saying, you know, little kids argue this way sometimes, right? I'm right. Nuh-uh, nuh-uh, I am. Nuh-uh, times a times hundred. Nuh-uh, and they, they think they're doing a mic drop, times infinity. But then the other one says, nuh-uh, infinity times a hundred. And we know that that's nonsense. It doesn't make sense because when you have an infinite, endless, forever reality of something, then you cannot add to it. It's still forever. Right? Beloved, God has given you in Christ, by His grace, through faith, every, all spiritual blessings. He has promised you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is the eternal weight of glory to it. And He's given you Himself, saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He, he is the one who has endless beauty and glory. So when you're discontent, you're saying he's not enough. Don't dethrone God in your hearts by thinking that he's been unfair to you or that it would be better for you if you had what somebody else has. But idolatry involves not only dethroning God, but also enthroning something else. And you see, the throne of our hearts abhors a vacuum. That is, it can never be empty. As soon as you take one thing off the throne, it has to immediately be replaced by something else. As I said at the beginning, if you are not worshiping God, then you automatically, by default, are worshiping someone or something else. So as soon as you dethrone God, you are enthroning something else. What is it? How do we enthrone something else? You enthrone on your hearts whatever it is that you trust in. Whatever it is that you trust in to give you what only God can give. To do for you what only God can do. To be for you what only God can be. You might say, I I would never say that. I would never say that God is not enough or that I'm discontent with Him. I, I would never say that something else can give me and do for me and be for me what only God can. No. No, we may not ever say that with our lips. But how about your eyes and what you look at? Or your time and what you spend it on? Or your money and where you put it? What you buy? Your focus and your heart's longing and disgruntled spirit. All of those can be saying, God, you're not enough. That thing is. I won't be happy until I get that greener grass. When we trust in something, we long for it, we chase after it. Because we believe that that will make us whole. That that alone will satisfy. What do you have that the Lord has not given you? Nothing. The Lord has given you your house. Just like he's given your neighbor's their house. He's given you your car, your job, 
your spouse, your children, your health. He's giving you your money because it's good for you. You must trust Him for it. Do you see how trusting God is central here? To not only worshiping God, but not worshiping something else. Not committing idolatry by coveting. Your life is governed by the providential hand of an all-knowing and perfectly wise God. And He says, I give you what is good for you now. There are many things about you and in your life that you cannot change. And you shouldn't want to. There are many things in your life that you should not change, and so you shouldn't want to. Because when you want to change that which you can't or shouldn't change, that God has given you, you're saying, God, you've messed up. You have not loved me well. You are insufficient. and Not enough. I'm discontent with you. I don't trust you. You're dethroning him and deifying that which is not God. You may object and say, yeah, but there are some things that I can change and maybe should change. Indeed, there are many, which is, this is where it gets really challenging. There's a complexity to contentment, to having godly contentment, but also having appropriate dissatisfaction with certain things in life. You should be able to be content and have a holy lament of things that are not right. You should have an energetic pursuit of the good and a passionate prayer of faith, for what you do not yet possess, what you do not have, what is not in yet in this world or in your life, while at the same time being content. Your sanctification, your being made holy like Jesus, you should not be satisfied with where you're at. If you are, something's wrong. Jesus tells us, Peter tells us, James tells us, Paul tells us, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we should be longing for heaven, putting all of our hope there. Wanting what we do not yet have. We should be desiring, praying for, and working for relief from suffering for ourselves and others. We should be desiring and pursuing salvation for others. Abilities, our abilities to grow so that we may bless others more. We should want that. Shouldn't we be thirsting and hungering and panting after intimacy with Christ and growing affection for Christ and growing faith in Jesus? How can we be content when we don't have so many things that we should want? That maybe that other people have in ways that we don't. As I said, it's complex. But I think we see here what contentment actually is. Contentment is a settled and peaceful heart of faith in God. Contentment is a settled and peaceful heart of faith in God. It's about faith. It's about trusting Him. So this is, you see, this is where we yearn for something that we do not yet have, something good, but we also, because we trust Him and are content, we do, it, we do so with patience. We wait patiently. We pray fervently, but we do not whine. We lament, but we do so with great humility. We work hard to change things and make things different and to receive things that we should want, but we also sleep well with great contentment of heart because we trust Him. We fight for what is good and right, but we do so lovingly. We mourn and we cry 
as we endure suffering or as others endure suffering, but we also sing and rejoice with great hope. Job suffered intensely, maybe more than just about anyone else we have ever heard of. He longed for, desired to be relieved of his pain. But in the end, eventually he was humble and he surrendered to God's sovereign and holy designs. Jesus desired and he prayed for deliverance in the garden from the wrath of God being poured out on him and drinking the fullness of that cup and yet he had faith-filled submission to the Father's will. Paul desired and he prayed fervently, not once, not twice, but three times that the thorn would be removed from him. And yet in the end, he embraced God's promise, saying, my grace is sufficient for you. See, all of this, this contentment, this settled, peaceful heart of faith in God requires patience and humility and joy. Contentment requires patience because It requires faith in God's timing. That's what patience is. You're saying, I need something and I want it now. But I will trust in your timing. But you bring it when it's best. Contentment requires not only patience, but humility. Saying, God, I think this is best. This would be perfect for me. But I neither have the power to control all things, nor do I have the perfect understanding and wisdom of how to bring it about. So I'll trust that your ways that are different from mine, higher than mine, better than mine, I will trust in your ways. Contentment requires patience, faith in God's timing, humility, faith in God's ways, and it requires joy, rejoicing, that is faith in God's goodness. That is, when you ask for something, you work for something, you fight for something, you pray for something, you wait and long for something good, and you don't receive it, or you get something very different, maybe even something that is painful and even sinful from someone else, you say, God, I will rejoice in you working good through it. And more than that, more than that, you rejoice in God's goodness because He is good itself. He's not just the satisfier. He is the satisfying one. It's Him. If you have Him, you have everything. So God, even if everything is removed, but I have You, I can rejoice. I can lament and be in great sorrow and pain and prayer and working and fighting and seeking after other things. At the same time, I can have a settled and peaceful heart of faith because I rejoice in You being goodness for me. We should not aim to renounce all desire. We're not Buddhist thinking that we can somehow even make that possible. It's not. We should not seek to diminish our desires or even limit our desires. We should seek to aim and direct all of our desires for the honor and glory of God. The God who is the person behind the Tenth Commandment. The God whose very nature and attributes and character Flow out from him this commandment to not covet your neighbor's stuff. The God who is the trustworthy and all-satisfying God who graciously promises, wisely plans, and providentially provides all good for his covenant people. This is our God. This is the God of the 10th commandment. This is the God in whom we should trust. This is the God who has given you everything that you have. 
from the air in your lungs to the health in your bones to the energy in your body to laughter and tears and family and friends and leaders to gravity and beauty and forgiveness and hope and a billion other things that he has given you all by grace. That we should not only be grateful for these and content with these, we should be grateful to and content with him. Because all these are evidence of our experiencing him. He is all satisfying, and so we should trust him. And if we trust him and are satisfied, content with him, we will not covet. Second main statement is that coveting is self-focused idolatry. It's not just idolatry that dishonors God. It is self-focused idolatry, and therefore it is self-destructive. It dishonors God, but it destroys us. Covetousness, while being a sin in the heart, never stays in the heart. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks and the life lives. It comes out, this discontentment, this distrust of God, this coveting, this selfish and sinful desire of what God has given to others and not to us comes out in our speech. It comes out and it shows up in how we spend our money. It controls our focus. It drives our time. It directs our energy and our activities. It shapes our attitude and produces our action. Covetousness is an insatiable kind of idolatry. It never turns off. And it consumes you and it ruins you. If you're coveting, you are never happy. Never. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness, right? With, this, with a settled and peaceful heart of faith in God is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But, with, but if we have food and clothing with these and with him, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, those who have a covetous desire for that which is not theirs, what God has given to someone else, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and, listen, harmful desires. Covetousness is harmful to you. It plunges people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, this covetous craving, that some have wandered away from the faith, that is from the gospel itself, from Jesus, and they have pierced themselves with many pains. This road of coveting is a miserable one, and it ends in hell. Reject it so as to receive him. Coveting is idolatrous. It dishonors him. It's self-focused idolatry and it's self-destructive. And lastly, coveting is unloving idolatry. And therefore, it's destructive to others. It's unloving and it's destructive to others. If ever there was a victimless crime of breaking one of the Ten Commandments, surely this is it. Because we're not doing anything. We're not saying anything to anyone else. We're just simply feeling something. Right? What's the big deal? How is it really harming anyone else? How can the Tenth Commandment be about love at all. Romans chapter 13 verses 8 through 10. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other because you will always owe each other that. 
For the one who loves, another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love, you see, does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Do you see what he does here by including coveting in this? He says, you owe love to your neighbor. He's saying you owe it to your neighbor to not covet their stuff. You owe it to your neighbor to not covet their life. And you wrong your neighbor. Verse 10, you wrong your neighbor when you covet them. It's unloving and it's destructive. You are loving them when you do not covet anything that is theirs. You say, well, I mean, I, I, I can see how it can make us miserable for coveting. They're always wanting and never enjoying. I, I can see how it dishonors the Lord because it's idolatry. But how is it really destructive to them? How is it unloving? Coveting is unloving idolatry because it is self-focused. And love is others-focused. So it can't be loving. Because it sees others either as a vehicle to get what you want, because that's your focus, or as an obstacle to get what you want. This is one of the biggest problems in marriage, by the way. Did you know you can covet your spouse? The time they have? How, well, they have it so much easier, or they have it like this, or if... And you see them as a vehicle to your happiness or an obstacle to it. It's unloving. Coveting. Idolizing what belongs to someone else hinders or altogether prevents you from rejoicing with them when they prosper or weeping with them when they suffer or being generous to them when they're in need. You cannot want their stuff and weep when it's gone for them. Or rejoice when they get more. Or be generous when they're in need. Your heart cannot be covetous of your neighbor and desirous of their good at the same time. Your focus is just in two different places. This means that even if you do rejoice with them or weep with them or if you give them something, you won't really be loving them. It'll be manipulation because your heart is not truly for them but for you. So you see, when you are discontent with God, when you are distrusting of God, it leads you to self-focused, unloving, and idolatrous desiring of what God has given to others and not to you. And this is destructive to them. It's destructive to yourself and it's dishonoring to the all-satisfying God. So what should be our response? How should we apply the principle of the 10th commandment and the simple principle behind the 10th commandment, the precept of you shall not covet what belongs to your neighbor is that we should trust in the Lord so as to be content with the Lord and grateful to the Lord for all that he has given and all that he's promised. You should so trust him that you're content with him. That you believe that he is all satisfying. That you should so trust Him that you are grateful to Him for all that He's given you, all that He's promised you, and indeed, all that He has not given to you and not promised you because you know that if you don't have it yet, it's not for your good. Four practical steps with this. Number one, confess. 
Confess your sin of covetousness. Confess your sin of being discontent with God and of distrusting Him. And if you don't feel it, then ask Him to open your eyes because you're blind. This week has been really challenging for me in this message in part because I've been seeing more and more and more how covetous I am. Small, little, subtle ways where I don't even realize it's happening until it's happening. How did my heart get there? God has helped me to see it. That I might confess it and turn from it. And that I might turn to you, Jesus, the only Savior who can cleanse me from my wicked, idolatrous coveting. By the blood of Jesus Christ that I can be cleansed from such dethroning of God and deifying of that which is not God. By grace, through faith in him alone. So confess it and turn to Jesus. Number two, fast. Prayerfully fast from food. Not to diminish your desire, but to increase it. To turn it up, but to direct it, you see. Fast from food so as to direct your desire for God himself. And God, you are better than what I normally seek after. Prayerfully fast from social media. When you're looking at what everybody else has, what everybody, their trips they're going on, that new outfit they bought, that new car that they just had. What does it do to your heart? Prayerfully fast from shopping sites. Whether it's looking at car parts, or gadgets, and technology, or, or, or bikes, or clothes, or jewelry. Do you see what happened to Eve? She didn't just walk up and take it. First she saw it. She was looking at it. And then she desired it. Same word, by the way, for coveting. She saw it, desired it, and then she ate. Maybe from some of these things and others... You need not just fast, but you need to reject them forever altogether because they're not good for you. It, you just know for yourself, it wrecks you. It puts your heart into the state where you want more and more and more. And what they have, I'll never be happy unless you have the greener grass, the lunacy of envy thinking in your heart. And God says, am I not enough for you? And as you fast, Ask the Lord to grow in you a settled and peaceful heart of faith in Him. That you would be content with God. Number three, be thankful and enjoy what God has given you. If you're always wanting something you do not have, what somebody else has, then you're never actually enjoying what you do have, what God has given you. So enjoy it as a gift from God and be thankful. Thank Him that all your gifts are from Him and thank Him that He is better than all His gifts. And fourthly, give. Give your stuff away. They said two weeks ago that sometimes God gives you things so that you can enjoy Him by enjoying the gifts. But there are other things that God gives you so that you can enjoy Him by, by highlighting and emulating and reflecting 
His generosity as you give it away to others. Giving generously, giving sacrificially, giving faithfully, and giving joyfully helps fight against discontentment. It helps fight against the, the cultural mindset of, of stuff and of more things and of better and newer. It helps fight against coveting because it helps you. I think it actually forces you sometimes to trust him to provide for you and it forces you to trust him to satisfy you. If we covet, it's because our own sinful and selfish hearts are discontented with God and distrusting him. And if we are content, and if we're caring, and if we're grateful, and if we're generous, it's because of the grace of God working in us by His Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are convicted over our sin of coveting, then it is only Jesus who can bring cleansing and forgiveness. It's only Jesus. So this morning, turn to Him in faith. And if you're not trusting in Jesus, I warn you, there is no forgiveness. There is no hope. There is no life. There is no peace. There is no joy outside of Jesus Christ. So turn to Him now in humble faith, trusting in His life, perfect, never being discontent with His Father, never distrusting Him, never dishonoring Him by coveting, always worshiping perfectly and loving others well. And then trust in His death on the cross as a substitute for sinners like us. Trust in His resurrection from the dead by which the power to overcome all of our enemies, including the last enemy, death itself, has been given to Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in Jesus this morning and you've had your faith affirmed by other Christians in baptism, In a local church, I invite you to take your communion cup this morning. I invite you to tear off the top and take out this wafer of bread that represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. The broken body of Jesus, the Holy One, whose sacrifice was enough. Whose life and death satisfied the wrath of God that you deserve. Take it with faith. Then take the juice. It represents the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for sinners like us. And then take it telling him that Jesus, you are the sovereign one who satisfied the Father's wrath, but also you are the only one who can satisfy my heart.